Welcome to another edition of the APA Podcast. This episode is brought to you by ENCODE Plus. Would you like to make your development regulations online and fully interactive? Wish your GIS map was online with links to the zoning districts and standards? With ENCODE Plus, all this is possible. This cloud-based software manages your ordinance content and publishes it to the web. Plus, you're able to update and manage in-house. Communities both big and small have trusted the planners of Kendig Keist Collaborative and ENCODE Plus to make their codes more usable, helpful, and accessible. They're now a partner with MuniCode, the nation's largest codifier. Visit www.encodeplus.com, email info at encodeplus.com, or call 281-302-5847. Get ENCODE Plus today. This is Jim Schwab, manager of the Hazards Planning Center at the American Planning Association. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about a particular project uh, that we'll be working on with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, part of the Department of Commerce. And with me are Jeffrey Payne, who is the uh, director of NOAA's Office for Coastal Management, Uh, He has been the uh, acting director for the past two years. He previously was the deputy director for NOAA's Coastal Services Center going back to 1998. Uh, Coastal Services Center has been absorbed into this new Office for Coastal Management. Uh, Jeff's current appointments include, as Department of Commerce, lead for the Federal Interagency Floodplain Management Task Force and the Good Neighbor Environmental Board, and a number of other responsibilities. Uh, Jeff has uh, maintained an extensive network of coastal and ocean science and management practitioners, serves as a subject matter expert on natural resource community resilience and climate adaptation issues. Uh, He's got a doctorate in geophysical oceanography from Texas A&M University and a bachelor's degree in geology from West Virginia University. Chad Berginis is currently the Executive Director of the Association of State Floodplain Managers, and I know him from some distance back. We actually have something in common. We both grew up in the Cleveland, Ohio area. He stayed a little longer, uh, serving with the Ohio Department of Emergency Management, and later as a consultant with Michael J. Baker Incorporated before taking his new position with ASFPM. Uh, ASFPM is the lead uh, organization on a new project for NOAA with regard to uh, coastal regional coastal resilience, and we'll talk about that project as we get into this conversation. So I will start with Jeff Payne uh, asking, you know, NOAA is investing $5 million in six grants through this regional coastal resilience program. Can you share some of the underlying aims of this program and what uh, value NOAA hopes to derive from this investment and kind of explain to our audience what this program is. Sure. Yeah, and thank you, Jim. I appreciate the opportunity to participate in this call. So first, let me update our Regional Coastal Resilience Grants Program with some good news, some uh, uh, emerging news. We have not only awarded uh, $4.5 million across six grants with our fiscal year 2015 funds, which you just referenced, 
but we recently announced an additional six grants worth an, another $4.5 million with fiscal year 2016 funds. So in total, we have 12 projects, um, and they were all selected from the original federal funding opportunity that we put on the street during uh, fiscal year 2015. And um, a bonus here, the, the president's uh, fiscal year 2017 budget requests a $15 million increase, which shows the administration's support for this important program. So getting to the, the basics of your question, the, the, the program focuses on science-based solutions and collaborative partnerships that are designed to help coastal communities improve their resilience to a range of hazards, including things like extreme weather events and changing climate and ocean conditions. And we'll talk a bit more about climate as we go through this conversation. And I think it's important to set some ground rules or, or terminology. When I say resilience, I like to use the National Academy of Sciences definition, which states that resilience is the ability to prepare and plan for, respond to, absorb, recover from, and more successfully adapt to adverse events. And I really like that adaptation part because that's really a reflection of the true nature of our planet and the dynamic environment that we live in. So in this context, I, I view resilience as more of a continuum and a journey. And I, I believe that this is fundamentally important to grasp because I view a resilient community as one that has or is essentially able to engage in all of these kinds of actions noted in that definition. And in practice, I also see a community achieving a stronger resilience posture by working incrementally and investing sustainably. So the time to develop something like a disaster recovery plan is not after a disaster strikes, it's before. That's, I hope, intuitive to most people, but it's not really what we do in practice or at least invest the proper amount of resources. And I like to refer to this as uh, pre-covery, uh, kind of a term of art. But it's just really a shorter term for the notion of pre-disaster planning for a post-disaster environment. But I think this term works especially well because not all disasters are episodic, like um, hurricanes, for example. Today, we are faced with uh, chronic and, and somewhat actually insidious events, such as sea level rise, ocean acidification, uh, saltwater intrusion, coastal erosion, and shifts in uh, global drought patterns. So the issue here is that we, we tend to be, I personally think, more short-sighted and to look for, um, in many um, respects, economic expediency at the risk of making investments that may in fact cost more in the short run but return greater dividends over the long run. And indeed, because they are more resilient. So infrastructure is a great example, and this project with APA and ASFPM speaks directly to that. And in the context of a changing climate and the potential for more frequent and severe hazard events, such as flooding, this becomes even more important. So imagine this, uh, a community recovery or adaptation planning allows the space to challenge the status quo and to envision what it would take to redevelop or newly develop with a goal to be more resilient to hazards with the parallel benefit of enhanced environmental, social, and economic security. 
to me, that is a somewhat different future than what we typically engage in. So for this program, we expect that the projects that we are funding, the 12, will advance resilience strategies through uh, things like land and ocean use planning, uh, disaster preparedness and recovery planning, enhanced application of what we uh, are terming natural and nature-based features, um, something that I think largely the Army Corps came up with, but um, we know it m more familiarly as, as green infrastructure and hazard mitigation planning. So it, in reading many of the proposals, uh, I certainly read all 12 that we did select in, in great detail, but I've seen some common themes emerge that are really sound principles and actions to achieve resilience. So, for example, these proposals are, are touching on those, those critical components, things like engaging in community risk and, and vulnerability assessment and risk communication. Um, a lot of the proposals are going to be working on identifying data and information gaps that are obstacles to actually achieving resilience, to making progress, um, applying decision support tools, and, and conducting uh, cost-benefit analyses for gauging the affordability of investment choices. Um, some other things that, that I've seen, um, the uh, intention to develop community resilience indicators and guidance and criteria and, and methods or methodologies. Um, we hear a lot about leveraging best practices and resilience networks and communities of practice. And then the, the topper, and really where the payoff, I think, in the larger sense exists, is the intention to share results broadly. And that actually then means that we are dealing with both local through national benefit. So in terms of value, the, the, the last part of your question, these are the kinds of things that we're looking for. And, and I guess I'd summar, summarize it by saying that what we need is more improved risk information and communication for decision makers and stakeholders alike. Um, we need to engage in planning and implementing actions that reduce risk, um, accelerate and re-envision development and recovery, and promote adaptation, that term in the definition. And also the coordination and sharing of results for broader national benefits so that this program, this Regional Coastal Resilience Grants Program, becomes a sustainable national investment, not just a series of pilots or one-offs. Even with the new projects that you announced, uh, for a total of 12, you still had a very large number of proposals to consider, uh, making this process very competitive. Can you give us some idea briefly about uh, how the agency actually sifts through all those proposals to make its, its uh, choices? Yeah, so first I'll discuss the, the competition results and, and then the selection process itself. So the program provided a total of $9 million. We actually had $10 million appropriated, but after uh, all of the puts and takes within um, the Department of Commerce and NOAA and, and at my office level, it ends up being $9 million in federal funds for the 12 projects across those two fiscal years, 2015 and 2016. The, the nine million in federal funds included a total of five million in match from all of the proposers. So the overall uh, effort that this program is lever leveraging is about fourteen million in investment, and that's significant. We received about a hundred and well, actually, literally, a hundred and thirty-two applications. Um, the total request there was for one hundred and eight million in federal funds and sixty million dollars in match. And I mention this in particular because this 
large number number of proposals is is really a striking result and a clear indication of the demand and the need for this work at the community and regional level. So regarding the selection process and, and the criteria that we use, the, the successful proposals, the 12 that we selected, um, and many others, uh, to be uh, frank, uh, there were so many good proposals, demonstrated things like regional coordination amongst project stakeholders. They were good at leveraging resources, such as uh, funds and programs and partnerships. And they created economic, uh, social, and environmental benefits for coastal communities. I keep coming back to that because I, I love that triple bottom line. When I talk in terms of resilience, that's really what works for me because resilience flows across all three of those components. The, um, the proposals we received were indeed very uh, impressive. The merit review process included about 95 individual subject matter experts from across the nation. And to get to the decisions, the top-ranking proposals from the merit review were considered uh, also in the context of other policy selection factors which were spelled out in the actual solicitation, the actual announcement, uh, the federal funding opportunity. Uh, and these included things like balance and distribution of funds according to geography, uh, the type of institution, the type of partner, uh, the research or applications area, and the project type. So in addition, we considered whether a project uh, duplicated other projects funded or considered for funding by NOAA or, in fact, other federal agencies and how that aligns with the program priorities and policy factors uh, as described in the federal funding opportunity. I was the selecting official, um, and my interest was in trying to build and fund a portfolio of proposals that ranked both very highly and provided for a balance to ensure diversity and, and the best overall return for the taxpayer's investment. My only lament in this, I guess in looking back, is that with just $9 million available for 132 proposals and $105 million uh, in requests for federal funds, uh, many of which were highly competitive, that we couldn't fund more. The nationwide demand for this is clear. And the $15 million increase that's been proposed by the president for FY uh, 2017 is both timely and positive. Great. Chad, uh, moving on to you, you know, the Association of State Floodplain Managers, like the American Planning Association, has uh, for a number of years now been a, a steadfast leader in NOAA's Digital Coast Partnership, another aspect of how NOAA is attacking these coastal problems. Uh, do you see this project as any outgrowth of that partnership? Can you tell us a bit about the project that uh, ASFPM and APA will partner on? And, and finally, does it introduce any new dimensions into your relationship with NOAA, and, and can you tell us what those might be? Thank you, Jim. Uh, and and I think this project um, achieves a lot of partnership goals and on, on many levels. Let me start first with the Digital Coast Partnership. Um, both ASFPM and the American Planning Association uh, were both um, you know, founding partners uh, in, this, um, in this more informal group uh, working with uh, NOAA uh, to to better enable the use and identification of critical data sets in the coastal area as well as tools and applications and so forth. 
Uh, and I think we're all working to reduce the risk uh, in those vulnerable areas, areas which, which I think, personally uh, speaking, are, are going to be one of our uh, nation's largest uh, issues going forward in this next century, uh, dealing with the issue of sea level rise and, and climate change. Uh, as it as it impacts our coastal floodplain areas, so uh, so for for several years now we've been working with the uh, Digital Coast Partnership, and I think that in and of itself has provided a lot of good results. Um, the um, uh, the partnership uh, webpage is full of uh, very useful resources and data sets. Uh, that are now enabling thousands of users uh, on an annual basis uh, to not only use but to, um, uh, but to take advantage of those tools and, and incorporate that into local decision-making. Uh, so when this particular program uh, came along, it, it actually felt like a very natural thing for us to get involved in. Uh, you know, between ASFPM and APA, uh, we represent over 55,000 practitioners in the nation, uh, and um, building on uh, a few points that Jeff made is that one of the things that we know is that we know there are some innovative practices happening right now uh, in the realm of capital improvements planning uh, in areas that are facing these increasing coastal threats. Uh, for example, in the Hampton Roads or Norf Norfolk area of Virginia, uh, in the Miami area of Florida, uh, and even in coastal Alaska, these are the these are these areas are on the forefront uh, of um, of dealing with sea level rise and some of these other issues. And so, the project that we submitted and were successful in getting funded uh, for the, for the new grant program has to do with mainstreaming these techniques, these innovative techniques for capital improvement planning. Uh, into uh, into communities across the country. So how are we going to do that? Uh, first of all, we need to identify where these these innovative approaches are occurring, uh, because in fact, whether you're a transportation planner, um, a a land use planner, a city engineer, stormwater manager, um, all of that infrastructure needs maintained, uh, and uh, and and there are plans designed for not only maintain, maintaining that but enhancing that infrastructure. Um, and so as I was hearing a presentation from a transportation planner in Maryland uh, just about a year and a half ago, um, there are communities that within a planning, uh, a transportation planning time horizon um, are now um, being faced uh, with investment trade-offs. Uh, for example, do we repair or replace this road or bridge that will likely be underwater in 20 or 30 years. And those are the real-life situation, uh, situations that uh, we'll be facing uh, communities uh, in the coastal areas in the coming decades. So once we've identified these innovative um, techniques that are being done right now, we intend to pilot those in two geographies. Um, one of those being in the Savannah, Chatham County area of Georgia, so in the uh, southeast Atlantic coastal uh, uh, plain, and then the other in Toledo and Lucas County, Ohio, uh, which of course is in the uh, Great Lakes coastal uh, region. And once we've identified these, these innovative techniques, we will ask 
these two pilot communities to actually select some of those techniques. And then through the project, we will enable those techniques uh, to be applied in planning and, and help us determine whether or not those particular techniques are, uh, are good to be mainstreamed across the country. Um, so based on those pilots as well as the research itself then, we plan on putting together a planner's advisory service report on these techniques that can then be provided to the entire practitioner community across the country so that we can hopefully have a step ahead uh, or be a step ahead uh, when it comes to capital improvements planning and um, and this increasing flood risk that we're going to be facing. Because let's face it, it's in these local capital improvement plans um, where trillions of dollars will be spent over the next several decade in maintaining and improving infrastructure. And that's the place we need to be first having this analysis and incorporating these resiliency techniques. Jeff, going back to you um, and having just heard the specifics of this ASFPM APA project uh, that Chad has just laid out specifically, uh, can you tell us what you most want to see our two organizations accomplish with this grant? Well, in short, great success. <laughs> that for an answer. <laughs> I know with these partners it's going to be uh, the case. Uh, to be more specific, there are a couple of things I would note. We really do appreciate the kind of no-regrets approach this project is taking, using improvements to aging infrastructure and the design of new infrastructure as an opportunity to help communities improve their overall resilience posture. Uh, I think one of the more cost-effective ways to increase resilience is to leverage ongoing work and ensure it is resilient to future conditions. So it's basically introducing those factors into the conversation that move away from standard practice and the status quo and envision a different way, a more resilient way of actually managing these assets. Um, and for the new work uh, to take into account future risk information to help guide the wisest design and placement of capital projects in particular, think about the floodplain and how it is that we are anticipating with a change in climate uh, a different um, basic definition of the floodplain. Um, I think an additional strength is that the, the guidance that the project team is creating will be tested and will benefit uh, others from the direct experience and grounding in Savannah and Toledo, as, as Chad just mentioned. So I, I feel that that's a, a really strong component. And to also make reference to Chad's uh, uh, I think important comment that both APA and ASFPM have an audience of thousands of planners and practitioners. I, I believe he said upwards of 55,000 members between the two organizations. This presents a tremendous opportunity. It's, it's the ability to mainstream the benefits from the study and improve the likelihood the project will actually have national impact. Uh, so as two of the very dedicated, long-standing members in the Digital Coast, this is one of the advantages that our office actually is seeking, the ability for our partners to help, I, I call it retail, uh, at the local level or the regional level, the things that we are doing in, in the wholesale uh, sense uh, to support the national level. So it's a nice marriage. I think it's um, 
also important that the project team try to identify and, and leverage other infrastructure standards guidelines and, and studies that are intended to advance resilience. There's a lot of stuff out there. The bibliography is actually pretty huge. So what is going to be the uniqueness and or the value added aspect of, of this particular grant? Uh, we'll be looking for that. Um, for example, looking into or, or at research into the, the system of systems perspective that we hear more and more about these days with respect to critical infrastructure management. Um, there's there's the you know standing issue of, of infrastructure sector interdependencies and the potential for cascading impacts due to disruptive events, especially dramatic uh, events like hurricanes and and the devastation that they uh, bring. And there's also uh, lots of recent guidance products that are coming off the, the presses. For example, the federal level, the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard, which uh, both of our all three of our groups have been talking a lot about. And then the National Institute of Standards and Technology, whom I, I greatly respect as one of the, the leading science and uh, applications federal agencies, uh, has been putting some stuff out, uh, working uh, especially diligently since everything from 9-11 to uh, Sandy and, and post-Katrina as well on helping to define you know, how we can do things better. So. Uh, they put out some infrastructure, uh, resilient infrastructure standards and guidelines. They've also put out more recently a community resilience uh, economic decision guide for buildings and infrastructure systems. So I, I think this project represents an opportunity um, to do one other thing, uh, and I'm, I'm going to kind of build off of what Chad uh, started with here and expand that a little bit. And that's the idea of creative financing techniques and partners. I, I've been talking a lot about this when I go out and, and you know, talk with others. Um, and what I mean by that is that looking at the global insurance and reinsurance industry, this is a huge industry. It, it manages, at least the last statistic I saw was in 2012, about uh, 22-plus trillion in capital on a global basis. Uh, and Chad noted uh, this very thing. So imagine this industry and the related financial sector, the banking sector, essentially, as, as partners in what we're trying to accomplish in creating um, green infrastructure solutions and opening new market opportunities that meld with our more traditional kind of gray uh, infrastructure approaches to enhance resilience and reduce risk. Essentially, this industry has the same bottom line as we have in, in the public service sector. We both seek to limit exposure. We want to reduce our liability. And what we've seen most recently is a very significant transfer of risk to the taxpayer to address uh, major catastrophic losses like Katrina, like Sandy. And um, we fundamentally, I think it, when, when the, the day is done, we want to improve economic and social security. And I, I don't mean social security in the normal sense, but the security of uh, our people and our environment. You might characterize it as profits. It, however you want to look at it, it is fine. But, but I think that this clearly, with uh, partnerships with um, the uh, financial services and, and other capital uh, providers, uh, industries, or sectors, you know, we can accomplish this. We, we can invest in green growth. We c they can help underwrite the transition to the things we need to be moving toward, like alternative energy sources and the, the better uh, employment of conservation. 
uh, strategies. So all of these things, in my view, should be factored and evaluated into the cost, uh, the benefit, and uh, the, the endurance calculations for our future infrastructure development decisions. I, I think that unless we go in this direction, it's, it's just going to be the same old, same old, and we'll continue to put uh, whatever it is that we build or refurbish or whatever into harm's way and with um, out regard to what we are learning um, every single day about a changing climate and the future risk conditions that that uh, implies. Chad, a couple more questions for you. One is what makes it attractive to have this partnership uh, between ASFPM and APA specifically on this particular project? Well, I, I think one of those um, one of those areas that we can continually improve is the coordination between the floodplain managers and community planners at the local level. Um, you know, too often, and uh, you know, whether whether you look at it from a federal perspective, a state perspective, or a local, uh, and maybe it's just simply a function of us being too darn busy all the time. Um, but we tend to be siloed into our individual areas. So, for example, at the community level, the floodplain manager may be the keeper and 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 the have the knowledge of flood risk expertise in that community because they're administering their local flood damage reduction standards and so forth. Uh, while the community planner uh, may be may be in charge of the capital improvements plan as well as comprehensive land use plans and so forth. Uh, and, you know, we, we, unfortunately we continue to hear from the field um, that the two um, sometimes have trouble overlapping. And so I think this is one of the projects, not only from a, an association to association standpoint, but down to our member level uh, where we can help um, bridge that divide a little bit and facilitate a much more effective partnership at that level. Great. And, you know, beyond the connection between ASFPM and APA on this project, we obviously have recruited some regional partners who will be working directly with us. Can you tell us a bit about the regional partners in Savannah, Georgia, and Toledo, Ohio, and, and why they chose to become pilot communities for this approach in this project? Uh, certainly. So, um, so starting with Savannah and, and Chatham County, uh, let me first uh, start by saying um, that they, uh, those, enti- those jurisdictions have uh, a very progressive flood risk management program. Uh, uh, Chatham County has uh, actually, in both of them, have, have done some award-winning educational programs in terms of um, educating folks about flood risk. And, uh, and local officials indicate um, uh, uh, some great enthusiasm for participating in this project. And I think one of the things you always have to keep in mind, especially with pilot communities, is you really do need to have local buy-in and local champions to make these kinds of projects successful. Uh, and so we, have, um, we also have the... Um, uh, the Metropolitan Planning Organization uh, on board as well. So I think we have a really good synergy and group of um, uh, group of partners there. In Toledo and Lucas County, we've actually done um, some previous uh, work uh, with them 
uh, as it relates to some tools that, um, that we're developing on incorporating social vulnerability in identifying alternatives um, uh, for some stormwater management techniques. And so we have some existing relationships there, uh, and they have also been uh, quite enthusiastic uh, with not only that project, but upon hearing this one and saying that we want to be involved. Um, and, uh, and I think both areas, uh, you have a situation where you have um, you know, not only a coastal flood threat, but, um, but a riverine flood threat. Uh, both areas uh, do have uh, thriving industries, uh, as well as urban issues and, uh, and more rural issues. And so I think both of those uh, uh, are going to be quite good pilot communities that will give us a real diversity uh, in terms of um, geography, one being in the Great Lakes, one being on the Oceanic Coast, uh, and uh, and a wide range of, of issues that they're dealing with so that we can uh, have a rigorous testing of, of these techniques. Great. So do either of you have any uh, final comments on the upcoming project that you'd like to share? One one thing I do want to mention, and, and I'm glad Jeff had talked about this, uh, and, and I had forgotten to say this earlier, is that in addition to some of these um, uh, practices and tools being developed at the community level, one of the other things that some of our very early research is already showing is that we have multiple resiliency initiatives occurring across the federal government. Uh, for example, um, uh, NIST uh, is, uh, has developed a resiliency initiative as, as has the National Academies of Science. And, um, and while on one hand, it's really great to see a lot of these federal these other federal partners developing tools and data sets and those types of things. Um, a, a concern I think I have is the ability for that data and those tools to be either piloted or disseminated to a much wider practitioner community. Uh, and so this project is also going to be looking uh, at uh, techniques not only that are developed and being implemented at the local level, but also actually at the federal level. Uh, and and incorporate those as appropriate. Okay, Jeff, you wanted to add something? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I do appreciate the uh, again the opportunity, and um, I guess I'd like to introduce maybe one more thing as a, as a thought uh, for people here. First of all, I, I feel that with the support of this grant and the capabilities of these two partner uh, groups, um, the project partners, we're going to positively impact community and national resilience. I have no doubt about that, and and frankly, infrastructure. Uh, how and where we develop um, is a leading, if not the leading factor that affects our economic, social, and environmental resilience. So we need to make good decisions here. And, you know, if you look at the statistics, they're sobering. Um, over the last 35 years or so, the U.S. alone has experienced uh, very nearly 200 distinct billion-dollar weather and climate events, uh, each causing $1 billion in direct losses, and that's huge. Uh, tropical cyclones on a per capita impact um, cost typically lead the way, uh, but drought is, is pulling up a, a really close second. The, the thing that I, I didn't get a chance to talk about, we did mention this concept of future risk, um, but along with that goes the uh, responsibility to try to deal with the issue of uncertainty. Because if we're going to talk economics, if we're going to talk social impacts, we have to address that. 
so NOAA clearly has a mission to ensure resilient communities and ecosystems. Um, you know, whether you express that in terms of environmental intelligence or decision-making, the role of the Weather Service to provide forecasts and warnings for public benefit or what we do to protect and manage our resources, um, all of that is important. But with a changing climate and, in some cases, an acceleration of change, we continue to be confronted with how we manage and, and make better risk-based decisions, which impact, again, economics and social conditions. So it's our job and many others' job, working with others, to provide the best science basis possible for understanding those changes and helping to translate the results into meaningful terms for decision-makers uh, with as much certainty as possible. You know, it's getting right to, to Chad's comment about, you know, Lots of stuff coming off the presses, but hey, let's figure out how to actually make this stuff uh, work. And is there sound, solid science behind it? I just wanted to, to end with, with one little story because it's, it's right on my brain right, right this second. I just returned from the Pacific where we hold our annual uh, Pacific Risk Management Ohana Conference. And Primo, uh, some of you may have heard of it, but... Uh, we had the Prime Minister of Tuvalu and the President of Kiribati as keynote speakers. These are two Western Pacific Atoll nations, um, just north of Fiji and Samoa on the map. Um, both of these islands are facing major impacts due to sea level rise, um, storms, waves, and saltwater infiltration, uh, which is actually impacting the security of their uh, food source production. So essentially, they're at risk of losing their land and thus their livelihood because they are such low-lying atolls. Um, they're fast becoming victims of this category we hear more and more about of, of climate refugees. And hearing their stories and, and what they're planning to do makes one think um, in broader terms. We, we need to think in terms of global impacts um, and of a changing climate and our global responsibilities as well. So much of what NOAA does and the capabilities we bring to the table to help communities and working with our partners is about preparing and planning for these changes. This is a, a critical part of what we all need to do, and it's front and center in, in terms of our strategic purposes. So. Hopefully, what we're going to be getting out of these regional coastal resilience grants and working with the partners is advancing those objectives and thinking in broader terms, broader impact. Uh, I really camped a couple of times in, in my comments on the national impact. That's really critical. Uh, we can do lots of stuff locally, and that's going to have a, a great positive impact. But let's think about how we are, as I say, moving the needle uh, at the national level to improve the resilience of the nation as a whole. Uh, and then maybe think as well about our global responsibilities there. I said it. <laughs> Great. Thank you to both of you for a really excellent conversation here, and uh, appreciate the time you've taken to do this. Thank you. Thank you, Jim.